Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Hotels.com, the world's leading online accommodation site. Now, I travel a fair bit. And every time I go away, I make sure to book through Hotels.com because they provide the best prices for hotels, vacations, Airbnbs, resorts, etc., etc., etc. You want a seaside apartment in my hometown in North Vancouver? You want a beautiful rental property in surf-friendly Costa Rica? Or perhaps you want to travel to Quebec City to visit the Plains of Abraham or maybe even a trip to Normandy to see Juneau Beach. Whatever it is, this website will find you the best place quickly and with the best possible price. What I love about the website is that they have a price guarantee. If you find a lower price elsewhere, they will match it. Plus, their mobile app is super easy to use, which helps immensely when I'm on the move. So for the listeners of Cool Canadian History, Hotels.com is offering $30 off select hotel stays of $250 or more. Go to usehotels.com slash coolcanadianhistory and punch in the code LISTEN30 when you make your purchase. So that's usehotels.com slash cool Canadian history and punch in the code listen 30 l-i-s-t-e-n 30 when you make your purchase there's really no point in booking elsewhere as hotels.com has everything you need travel easy today and book hotels.com hello and welcome to cool Canadian history I'm your host David Boris Today, Season 4, Episode 15, Separate Spheres Turned Upside Down, French Women and the Survival of New France. Now, while back in France, the expectations on how men and women should behave were strictly defined and adhered to due to immense social pressure in New France, the demands of the frontier meant significant challenges to accepted gender roles no more so than in the involvement of New France women and the lucrative fur trade. Today's book recommendation is Along a River, The First French-Canadian Women by Jan Noel of U of T Press, uh, published in 2013. In this book, the author shines a light on the lives of remarkable French-Canadian women, immigrant brides, nuns, tradeswomen, farmers, governors, wives, and even smugglers during the period between the settlement of the St. Lawrence Lowlands and the Victorian era. 
Okay, so let's go back to the St. Lawrence River in the 17th century. Several thousand white, French-speaking Catholics live along the river in isolated settlements surrounded by dense wilderness and outnumbered nearly 10 to 1 and perhaps even more by a variety of indigenous groups speaking a variety of different languages. This period is often referred to by historians as the fur trading period of New France, and this is because by far the leading export from the fledgling French colony were animal furs. Most of the furs were taken from the region around the upper Great Lakes, but as furs depleted, explorers continued pushing further westward, looking to form new relationships with indigenous groups that could lead them to or supply them with a fresh source of fur-bearing animals. In order to support this expansion westward into new, untapped areas, a series of forts and missions were set up. These forts were like forward bases from which explorers could push farther and farther into First Nations territory. Thus, the fur trade in New France stretched well beyond the shores of the St. Lawrence River, effectively connecting the dense wilderness of North America to the settlements of the eastern part of the continent, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean back to Paris, France, and the rest of Europe. One element of the fur trade which has perplexed historians is the role of women. You see, the European population of New France was quite small, and in this environment, while most operations were run by men, it simply was not feasible to stick to the strict patriarchal expectations of the old world, expectations that, for instance, prohibited most women from engaging in business. These expectations were rooted in a fundamental belief in the separate spheres, that being women operated solely in the domestic sphere, so raising children, running the home, etc., while men operated in the public sphere, conducting business, engaging in politics, and so forth. But the new world proved far too harsh and demanding for this separate sphere ideology to be strictly adhered to, Things needed to be different in order for various fur trade operations to survive. So historians in recent decades have delved deep into the role that women played and have found that they indeed were pivotal in the operating of this all-important economic activity. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One lady who stands out is Madeleine Roybon Dallon, who is thought to have arrived as one of the Fidois, or King's Girls. That was several hundred women of lesser nobility who were sent to New France in 1663 and again in 1673 to help bolster population numbers. Madeleine lived a fascinating life for a woman of the period. 
1675, she was given title to a piece of land near Fort Cataraqui, which is sort of modern-day Kingston, Ontario, where she established fairly solid trading links with local native allies. This was all primarily focused on the acquisition of furs. However, she was eventually captured by hostile enemy Haudenosaunee, or the Iroquois, and held captive for an extended period of time. She disappears from the records until 1700, when she resurfaces once again at Fort Cataraqui, once again engaged in the fur trade. Though she does get into a bit of hot water with authorities when she is implicated in the trade of brandy with local natives and is explicitly forbidden by written order to continue selling the spirit. Nonetheless, it seems that Madeline continues in the fur trade based out of the Fort Cataraqui region, which was later named Fort Frontenac, until her passing sometime in the late 1720s or early 1730s. The wives of senior officers played important roles at the forts as well. At Fort Detroit, for instance, modern-day Detroit, Michigan, of course, the second wife of Commander Alphonse de Tonti, that's Marie-Anne Lemarque, who had already borne 15 children to a previous marriage and had been already actively engaged in smuggling banned English cloth into the colony, was active in maintaining the fort's position within the fur trade. This meant her seeking and maintaining alliances with local indigenous groups and sustaining the fort's defenses all the while running the commander's household. After the death of Dutonti, Maurienne petitioned local administrators for financial support, stating that she had spent all their remaining assets in support of the Detroit Post. Sometimes women inherited their roles in the fur trade. At 16 years of age, Marie de la Trinité married Pierre d'Argentoul. However, Pierre was quite frankly a poor businessman, and after having bore him eight children, Marie petitioned for a separation on the grounds that he had mismanaged their business affairs so poorly they were on the edge of destitution. Marie then engaged in a long, drawn-out legal battle with the Sulpicians, a Catholic order of monks, for control over a key piece of land that sat right along the route of returning furs into Montreal. She won her separation, and she won the legal battle with the Sulpicians, and this kick-started her deep involvement in the fur trade. By 1717, she was commissioning her own voyageurs to go into the wilderness to get furs, and by the time she passed away, she was one of the wealthiest people in all of New France. Now, Marie-Anne Barbel was based out of Tadoussac and was left a widow with five children between the ages of six and 19. Now, despite the challenges of caring for her family, or in fact, because of the challenges of caring for her family, Marie-Anne formed a company with two other male merchants who eventually had 24 men working for them in both furs and the marine oil business, that is oil from whales and fish. Another widow was perhaps the most influential of all the aforementioned women. After her husband's death in 1717, Marguerite Boat operated one of the most prominent fur trading companies in all the St. Lawrence, connected to business interests in La Rochelle, a city on the southwestern coast of France. 
She was so successful that she eventually was asked to move to La Rochelle to act as an agent for the governor of New France to help regulate prices being charged by merchants in that coastal French city. She then became an important government advisor, working on behalf of the Canadian fur trade, advocating at the French royal court for policies that would encourage more people to trade with France's colonies and not with their rivals, the English. Now, before we continue, a reminder that you can find us on all of your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. In fact, you may right now notice that my voice sounds a little different, in fact, a little deeper, maybe a little clearer, and that is because I was able to purchase some new equipment because of the donations themselves, and this has allowed me to create a better sounding podcast. So thank you very much for everyone who donated, and we appreciate every penny you offer up. And don't forget, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. Okay. So far, we've covered some of the more prominent women, and these are, generally speaking, women of status, all of whom seem to be from the elite ranks of colonial society and who are somewhat visible in the historical record. But the fur trade itself and the daily workings of the colony of New France operated on the backs of many lesser well-known and at times even anonymous women. Non-noble white women often occupied positions at the various posts as laundresses, cooks, hosts, lodgers, tailors, seamstresses, and a variety of miscellaneous needs, including tending to the local farm often attached to a mission or fort. A Madame Goya worked in a Jesuit mission amongst the Wendat, doing laundry and baking, with a yearly salary of 100 livres. One woman at Fort Mackinac, my favorite fort name in all of history, in modern-day Michigan, Manon Lavoie operated a business selling provisions to voyageurs and, as well, Native Americans who were accompanying fur trading expeditions going west. Madame Saint-Martin appears to have been a moneylender in Detroit. While most of these women were paid by the crown for their services, many of the women often chose to be paid in the form of goods as opposed to actual coin. One unnamed woman, for instance, was paid for her work in deerskin pelts, nails, beads, powder, and shot, which she herself sold to make enough money to buy a farm. Clothing in particular was an important trade good, and many women were engaged in sewing and tailoring clothing to sell or trade. Toques in particular were in high demand amongst the French-Canadian voyageurs, and one fort commander noted that the Canadian girls in the fort would pick up their sewing needles any chance they could get to turn out clothing to sell to those involved in the fur trade. So what do we make of all of this? Well, historically speaking, 
women have often been written out of the history of New France, and thus Canada's early foundations. What more and more researchers and historians are realizing, however, is that women were in fact crucial and integral parts to the working of the colonial economy, based largely around the fur trade. And it should be pointed out here that this discussion has not even considered the important role played by First Nations women in connecting the European fur traders with indigenous communities, a crucial part of the fur trade's existence. Generally speaking, the idea of separate spheres for men and women that permeated patriarchal old world Europe simply could not stand up as cleanly and neatly within the rugged demands of the New World. Women were at the frontier of European expansion, operated crucial businesses, performed a variety of important roles, and often multitasking to do so, and were important contributors to the fledgling French colony. Without them, the New France that became Canada would never have survived. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to let our listeners know that I will be taking off to Europe in a few days to visit Poland and the Ukraine, as well as to visit the village where the Boris family originally came from, which is now in southern Poland, but in the late 19th century when my family immigrated was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. While traveling, sadly, I won't have any of my gear on me, and thus will not be able to post episodes. So the next episode, that is episode 16, will not be in two weeks as is normal, but will in fact be out in four weeks on May 12th. As well, our postings on Instagram and Facebook may become somewhat erratic and sparse. I apologize for this lengthy break and cone of silence, but you shall hear my voice soon enough. Take care, all. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool. Stay cool.